Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. I wonder, have you ever attended an online Bible study? Would you like to start one, but don't know how? In our episode today, John and Paula Ely share about their own journey of faith and how they have come to appreciate the interactive Bible study model of fellowship. Not only does this type of meeting help attendees engage with the text of Scripture, but it also fosters genuine community in an age where we're all increasingly isolated. Here now is episode 382, Salt and Light Study Night with John and Paula Ely. Well, John and Paula Ely, thank you for joining me at Restitutio today. I'm glad to have you for some conversation. Thanks for inviting us, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having us, Sean. I thought we'd begin by just hearing your background a little bit. Of course, we want to talk about Salt and Light Study Night. Uh, but before we do, we want to hear a little bit about your story and how you came to care so much about the Bible and God and have this be such a big part of your life. Uh, so who would like to go first? I can go first. All right, John. So I grew up kind of all over the place, lived in Alabama, Florida for 10 years. I'm kind of an honorary Florida man. <laughs> then, I, then after that, moved to Richmond, Virginia. I uh, went to high school in Richmond. Uh, my parents had both gotten involved with The Way International, which a lot of people are that listen to this podcast are familiar with. So they got involved with The Way when they were young and single, continued being involved uh, when they got married and as we grew up. So for me, growing up, my experience with The Way was basically my experience with Christianity. Like The Way was all that I knew, was raised with The Way's doctrines. We had home fellowships in our house pretty much my entire life. Um, overall, it was a really positive experience for me. You know, my parents taught me how to love and trust God, how to love his people. I, I was taught the importance of service, both to God and to his people. And my parents really provided an, just an excellent example for me. I really have no complaints about how I was raised. Very thankful for uh, the respect that they instilled in me for God and for his word. So I, I grew up attending way classes. I, I took those pretty much the earliest that I possibly could. I read all the, the way materials. And what, what were the names of the classes you took? So they have a foundational, intermediate, and advanced class, which are kind of the trifecta of their classes. So I took the foundational class when I was 12, which is the earliest you can take it. I took the advanced class when I was 16, which is the earliest you, you could take it. So I was very involved as a, as a child growing up. Um, went to college at Virginia Tech and got a degree in mechanical engineering there. And after that, I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan to take a job in the automotive industry. Uh, and that's where I really started to get involved with, with Way Fellowships in that area. So I served as a like assistant fellowship coordinator and, uh, and coordinated a household fellowship there in Michigan. And that's where I met Paula. Okay. All right. Thank you. Paula, uh, could you share with us your journey and, and what it was like growing up for you and how you came to commit yourself to God? Yeah, for sure. I was born in Ecuador 
and my family immigrated to the States when I was five. But um, before we came to the States, my parents had gotten involved in the way in Ecuador. So I believe they got involved in the way in like 88 or 87 around that time. So when we moved to the US, we were um, already participating in fellowship in some format. Generally, it was also a very positive experience for me. My parents were also very God-loving. They were strict growing up. Um, family and education and fellowship were super important. And I think my, my parents were a great example of believing Christians, of those who taught me how to trust God and have fun, definitely have fun. Uh, we, I grew up, like I mentioned, and just kind of followed the usual track of taking the classes when I was 12, took the foundational. I think I was 15 when I took the intermediate. And then I took the advanced class my senior year of high school. I actually missed my high school graduation for it. So that was when I was 17. And then shortly after that, when I was in the middle of my junior year at Rutgers, I left to do a six month Christian outreach program, which is known as the Way Disciple Program. And that was the program that brought me to Michigan. And that experience was super developmental. I grew up tons, both personally and spiritually, and I got tons of opportunities to lead, to teach, to follow, to evangelize, and really got to see God in ways that I had never experienced before. So I got to Michigan and that's where I met John. We met each other. We met actually in 20, uh, when we were both 18 at another youth camp in Gunnison, Colorado. That's where we met, but didn't we get, didn't become friends until we were both in Ann Arbor in our early twenties. Okay. So then what happened next for you guys? Before we got married, we were like John mentioned before, we were pretty involved in, fellowships and like the youth events that were in the area. We were going to leadership meetings. We were um, spending a lot of time with our peers and our friends that were all part of that community. So we were pretty involved, you could say. Our disagreements with the way started out as cultural and then it grew to become doctrine as well. But it didn't, it took a little bit of time for us to really see what that was. We found a big sense of belonging at the way. And we found purpose in the roles we took on. It took us some time to figure out that at the way international being part of the way became part of our identity, which really wasn't a good thing. When we talked with friends and peers at the way, there was a general attitude that things weren't really the way they should be or the way that we wanted them to be. But there was this general sense of hope that things were going to change. And it was really easy to look over or to kind of ignore those, those cultural issues that we saw because we justified them as being generational or just being differences in generations that would, you know, eventually change. Yeah. So just wait it out and things will get better. Yeah. That was the general, that was a general attitude for sure. Um, so during the first few years of our marriage, we were in a couple of different leadership roles. And that's really when we started to notice the cultural issues. It wasn't until a few of our close friends like Will and Becca Barlow were leaving the way or, or were, and or were dismissed from the Wake program. These groups of friends were people that we really looked up to and believed in, believed in the sense that we really hoped they were the ones that would pave the way for change or uh -huh. the ones to inspire like revival, you know, make all these generational issues that we thought were still there. And we just didn't really understand what was going on, why they were leaving why people were being kicked out. 
um, we had a lot of questions. And when that kind of stuff happened, that's when we started to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we didn't really get answers. We didn't really get answers. And that made us a little bit jaded. We were unsatisfied. We met with leadership. We've had a lot of good conversations with our friends and our and people that we trusted in. But like I said, we didn't really get answers. Could you give some specifics about the cultural issues? One of the bigger issues that we had was the exclusivity attitude where it was us versus them. You know, we have the truth and others don't. The one true um, church idea? Yes, yes, exactly. And it was like that general attitude of, of that that really started to turn us off. And at first we thought it was a generational thing, but you know, the more we were in those leadership positions and the more that we asked and talked about, talked about it, we learned that it, it wasn't really generational. It was this general attitude of, um, I think really ultimately pride. I think some of that you can see in some of the terminology that they use. So if someone was no longer attending a way fellowship, they would, it would be said that they were not standing anymore as if they were like not standing on the word anymore. Um, even if they were going to another Christian church and were serving in that capacity. So I would agree with what Paula said that we wish that there was more humility and more openness to consider that some of the, the ways doctrine may not be correct, right? To be open to open to questioning, like reasonable, genuine questioning, not just people being critical of stuff. Okay, so you you saw some cultural issues that concerned you. You saw some of your friends and people that you really trusted leaving. And how did you end up in Richmond, Virginia, if you were up there in Michigan? Yeah, so we decided to, to move closer to family. My family's here in Richmond, and Paula's family is in New Jersey. So it's like a short six-hour drive, but much closer than Michigan. So we decided to move closer to family. Uh, you know, we wanted to start a family and, and be close to my parents. Yeah, so in 2017, we moved back to Richmond. And that was when we really started broadening our spiritual horizons, I guess you could say. Uh, for us, that like initially started out as kind of a half-hearted search for local churches here in Richmond that we could attend, just mainstream churches, just to see what they were like, because we hadn't really experienced that very much. Yeah, we really enjoyed doing that. It really helped us to get the get to know the community, the Christian community in Richmond. Um, I thought it was really fun. And shortly after that, I went to an inner healing conference in Nashville. Actually, it was in Franklin, Tennessee, at the at a church called Grace Center Church. Um, one of my really close friends had just went there and gotten some healing herself. So she talked to me about it and told me her testimony. I signed up and went. So when I got there, uh, it was a three-day conference. And during that weekend, I was miraculously healed from chronic stomach issues that I had been dealing with for many years. And with the friends that I was staying with, we got a lot of really good time to talk about the word and discuss scripture. That was the first time that I was introduced to 
something different than what I was taught growing up. So that was a really pivotal point, not just because I had gotten this miraculous healing and I attended a charismatic church that was not the way, but that was the first time where I got to ask questions without you know, being afraid of being kicked out or feeling like I was going to be judged for the kind of questions. It was a really good environment. So that really taught me that it was okay to be vulnerable. It was okay to want to ask questions. It was okay to have doubt uh-huh. and to use that to drive my faith. Yeah. So when I got back home, you know, John, I was telling, I would call him and tell him some of this stuff. But when I got home, I think that was a pivotal point for us when we decided to do more than what we had just been doing. We were kind of, like John mentioned, half-heartedly church shopping in the local area. Now, why were you doing that in the first place? There, what, there wasn't a way fellowship around to attend? I think for us, it was kind of just like a clean break from how we had been involved in Michigan. So we were moving to a new area, and we just saw it as an opportunity to kind of place some, some limits on our involvement with, uh, with stuff in the way and to start exploring other churches. Okay. And Paula, you were saying you were calling him, telling yeah. him about your, your own experience. And uh, John, what did you think about that? Were you like, oh, I'm so happy for you? Or were you like super suspicious? Like, who are these weird people and why are they healing my wife? <laughs> so I, I was extremely thankful that she was healed, obviously, okay. as yeah. any husband would be. She did come back and start talking about things that I had never heard about, like the fact that dispensationalism is not the only way to understand the Bible. Uh, so I'll, I'll be honest and say, like, I did not react very well to that. I, I noticed I had, like, looking back, I had a kind of an emotional gut reaction to that kind of core belief being questioned. So that was, that was hard for me just to even think about that not being true. But I think looking back over the years, as my beliefs have been challenged more and more, I've actually come to enjoy that thought because for me, it's, it's just getting one step closer to, to having more accurate beliefs and to having a closer relationship with God. But in this situation, it was difficult. Yeah, it would, I mean, my wife was away at a conference and came back with all these new ideas that <laughs> I had never heard of before. And so it was a little bit scary for me at first, but I'm really glad that, that we had that experience. And I think we've come away with a stronger faith. A short time after that, I actually found uh, your podcast, Sean Restitudio. Jerry posted an episode to Facebook that he was in. And it, it, it piqued my interest. I think the episode was actually on Paul and covenantal nomism, which as someone who is just coming out of the way and uh, not familiar with theological terminology, it's probably like the worst first Restitutio episode to listen to. I don't think I actually understood the majority of what, of what you guys were talking about, but it, it piqued my interest enough to keep listening and to go through and listen to a bunch of different episodes. And it, it really helped, helped expose me to different ways of thinking about the Bible other than what I was raised with. It's interesting, that episode and uh, his other episode right around the same time called Exegetical Fallacies, 
Um, they were two episodes that I was very worried about. I remember recording them and him talking and me thinking to myself, oh, gosh, this episode's <laughs> going to bomb. It's so technical. It's so nerdy. People are not going to want to listen to this. And then the opposite happened. And not just with those two episodes, but pretty much with any episode since then, if it is technical, if it is loaded with jargon, then people download it more. And the sort of vanilla, like Christian living stuff or encouragement, inspiration type stuff, people don't download it as much. (laughs) Yeah, so that was a real learning experience for me as well as the host of the podcast that wow, what people are really after is not the general stuff that they're getting on Christian radio or on YouTube or with their pastors or fellowship coordinators or whoever. What they're looking for is the more specialized stuff that they can't get in the normal spaces. Um, and that, So that was a huge learning, learning point for me as well. Not that Jerry did that on purpose. Jerry was just being Jerry, you know. <laughs> tell the story of how you about jerry yeah i should tell a story of, yeah please of uh kind of how we got to know jerry really well so this was back when we were in michigan like right after we got married like i said we were acquaintances with jerry but we didn't really know him super well and i was having a birthday party that paula was showing for me i think it was a chili cook-off i think it was your 30th birthday and for some reason she invited jerry and i i don't remember how how you had the idea to invite Jerry because we didn't really know him that well. Well, I think we were at a service at a Sunday service at the Waze headquarters and we saw Jerry at the service and we just started talking and I just randomly invited him and he was like, yeah, I'll come. <laughs> and sure <laughs> that's, enough, that's yeah. Jerry. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So he came, he drove his little blue hatchback, which, which I he think still has. He still has. Yeah. So he drove that up from, was oh, he in Ohio? Ohio. Ohio. Mm-hmm. And he, he broke, well, his car broke down at the entrance to our neighborhood in the snow. So I had to run out there and help him push his car, like right in front of our house. Um, so he stayed for the, for the party. I think he, he brought some homemade wine. That, I think it was Pinot Noir. That he had made. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to talk with him and get to know him better. And I think he ended up staying the night because his car was broken down. And he couldn't leave. <laughs> Not that we wanted to leave, but um, so that's kind of how we got to know Jerry as a friend, I would say. Okay. And then you saw his post on uh, Facebook where he was on this podcast and you, that intrigued you enough that you started listening to other episodes too. And yep. uh, at what point did you bring Paula in? I think I, I think I listened to this for a few months kind of on my own just to like, feel it out and to see what kind of ideas you were presenting, Sean. Right. Cause you didn't know me at all. Yeah. I didn't know you. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to just drop these new beliefs on my spouse. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but so I, I, I eventually told Paul about it and we started listening to some episodes together for a while. We really enjoyed it. And then I think Paula heard a promo for revive 2020. That was in, in January of 2020. The, that was when Revive was. And she was like, we should go because Paul is super outgoing and loves meeting new people. Mm-hmm. And I'm not super comfortable <laughs> with me just meeting new people, just flying to New York and 
hanging out with a bunch of people I don't know. But right, and we should also say this is pre-COVID. So yes, yes. Uh, pretty much the first weekend of the year, and I think COVID was probably in the United States, but nobody was talking about it. Nobody really knew anything about it. It wasn't on the radar for this event. What was that like for you, John, coming in, you know, seeing all these people? I mean, I guess you only knew Jerry. Yeah, we only knew Jerry. And uh, I think Jerry arranged for us to, to stay in the same bunk as him and Jen. So that was really nice, like having the, the safety of someone that I knew there. But it was it was a lot of fun. Got to meet you, Sean. I think you you contacted us and you actually picked us up from the airport and showed us around the church. You gave us a warm welcome there. But we got to meet a lot of a lot of great people. It was a really uh, transformative time for us, I would say. Yeah, that was the first time that we had ever met other biblical Unitarians outside of the way. So for us, it was very eye-opening. It was really encouraging too that wow, there's a whole community outside of what we grew up in. And got to learn uh, about other Unitarian, biblical Unitarian churches in different parts of the world. We got to meet a lot of the people from Toronto, some Church of General Conference people out in the Midwest. So that was really special. It was really special for us. Yeah, so when we got back from Revive, um, I think we got a little bit more serious about what we wanted to do and wrote some goals down, you know, as per the beginning of the year. And one of our goals was to learn more about these doctrinal differences, um, different ways of thinking, different theology, and make decisions, you know, like figure out what we believe. And a big part of that, too, was being okay, not having all the answers growing up. For us, I, we always felt like there was a pressure to have everything figured out or to have all the answers and, you know, to, um, to not have any doubt. And so I think with coming back and having met this new community of biblical Unitarians, even just the experience of, of worshiping with other Christians outside the way, that was really encouraging. Listening to Restitutio helped me to understand the value of doctrine. I didn't really, honestly, I didn't really get what the big deal was, um, especially with more of those technical podcasts, Sean. I was just like, what's the big deal? Cool. All right. But how do I pray? How do I evangelize? You know, so I just didn't really get it. But listening more and more and learning how to become more humble to new information and to new changes, I did learn that um, solidifying your doctrine was really important to your practice. Your doctrinal beliefs really are your foundation for how you live out your Christianity, for how you practice um, for how you evangelize, it really impacts a lot. For me, that was something that was really important in changing how I practice and changing what I believe. Okay. All right, so let's transition to talk about Sultan Light Study Night. Share a little bit about how this this online fellowship got started. Yeah, so as I said, we've known Jerry for a while, and after reconnecting with him at Revive, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic came a few months after that. And Jerry texted us, I think, a month or two into the pandemic that, uh, that your home fellowship was doing their meetings on Zoom and that we should, we should attend. So we called in and I think a lot of other people were calling into that as well. So we got to sit in on your Bible study and I think you guys were going through 
Second Thessalonians at the time. Uh, so we attended that for a few weeks and it was really great to, to sit in on another biblical Unitarian Bible study via Zoom from Richmond. I think a month or two after that, as the cases started to go back down, you guys started to meet in person and we're no longer uh, meeting online. So us and a whole bunch of other people that were attending your Bible study online, we're now looking for a, a place to go. So Jerry had reached out to Paul and I about the idea of us potentially coordinating an online Bible study. I think my first reaction to that was just a feeling of being unqualified. It's like, who am I to, to lead a Bible study, especially when I'm in the middle of trying to figure out what I believe? Like I've changed a lot of my beliefs. Like I had coordinated a Bible study before, but now I'm being asked to coordinate um, an online Bible study with a whole bunch of new people who did not come from the same faith tradition that I did. So I, I, I kind of expressed that to Jerry and Paul and I talked about it and we decided that it would be a, a great opportunity to, to serve and, and to meet some people. And Jerry was very reassuring that it would be a great experience for us and would really meet a need for a lot of people. So after that, we were introduced to John and Anna Brown who have become some very close friends of ours. Uh, I think they were also calling into your, your home fellowship. So we really teamed up with them and that's how we started Salt and Light was us and, and the Browns got it off the ground. I realized that your feeling of not thinking you're, you're trained well enough or that you are qualified or whatever, that's probably a very common way so many others feel as well and probably stopping a lot of people from starting their own online fellowships or fellowships in their area. So I think it's really important to hear your story, both of your story, about how this really got going uh, to be what it is now, where it's a stable, independent fellowship, and you guys are able to uh, go through the Bible and be okay without having all the answers. Because even those of us who you think might have all the answers, we sure don't. <laughs> like We have plenty of questions. So uh, let's drill down a little bit, explain to the people, what is Salt and Light? If they wanted to do one themselves, um, what is it? What, what are the nuts and bolts? What does it look like? Salt and Light is a completely online Bible study. And right now we meet every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And for about an hour, an hour and a half, we discuss the Bible, we talk about our lives, we pray together. Our general structure at the moment is for the first 20 minutes or so, we talk about how our past week has been, which really helps build community. Uh, we share prayer requests and praise reports during that time also. Then right after that, we take some time to pray for each other, pray for any of the things that we've asked each other to pray for. And then for the last 30 and 60 minutes, we have our study time where we go through a specific book of the Bible, verse by verse, and either discuss or the, the person who's leading the discussion gets to go through and explain certain things and ask certain questions so that the audience or different people in the group can, re can respond and also have the opportunity to ask questions. Okay. We finished the book of James a few weeks ago and we're in Galatians right now. Since Galatians is a little bit more technical, we have been doing less of the discussion format and it's been more of a teaching 
format for now, but typically it is a lot of interaction between the leader, discussion leader, and the people in the group. Yeah, part of the Bible study is people learning, people discovering, people asking questions. That must have been very different for you. Yeah. Um, one thing that, that we really saw attending your fellowship that I personally hadn't experienced before was a Bible study where the format was to go through a single book of the Bible verse by verse. I really, really saw the value in that because you can't skip over the verses that you don't like. Yeah, You can't pick and choose. You can't like you. It's much harder to take verses out of context when you're reading the entire context week over week. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really helps you put the whole book together. So we, we really enjoyed that. And that's something that we've been trying so far in salt, salt and light, not saying that we'll keep that format every single week. Like we can do whatever the group wants to do. Yeah. There's a time and a place to cover a doctrine or a topic as well. Right. Oh yeah. 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 For us, it's been really valuable to go through uh, the, the whole book of James verse by verse. And now through Galatians, I think we're in chapter four, verse by verse. Yeah. It's been a great experience to be in this Bible study with people with different backgrounds, different age groups, you know, different parts of the world. And they bring different experience, even with the Bible, people have a pretty good breadth of knowledge. So it's been pretty cool that we each fill in gaps for each other. Um, and we get to talk about stuff that we might not even know how to talk about it. But we, we've done that so well in our group, and it's been a big blessing. I'll tell you what, as a leader of a weekly meeting like this, people in my fellowship respond so much more when I raise a question that I genuinely don't know the answer to. <laughs> mm. And they might not know the answer either, but they just think it's fun to think about it. And, you know, different ones will take different stabs at it. And, and you know, that's where learning can occur. And uh, sometimes nobody really gives the definitive answer, but then that offers the opportunity to go off on our own and do more research and that's all good, too. That's all discipleship, and that's, uh, you know, it's good to have something you're chasing after during the week anyhow in your, in your time with God. And I think if there's anyone out there listening that is saying to themselves, oh, I would really like to start one of these, but I'm just not sure how, you know, come to Salt and Light, right? I mean, would you guys allow somebody to sit in that is just, like, curious to see how things go? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we've had people attend that aren't even Christians who are just interested in learning more about the Bible or things like that. Yeah, we welcome anybody who has questions, um, who wants to know what it's like. One of the things that has really helped me understand the Bible better and really the character of God better um, has been how to critically think about the Bible. And I think before, the way that I thought about the Bible was I was regurgitating verses or uh, associating, you know, specific sections of scripture with this topic or answering this question with these, only these verses. But now being in this group and helping each other ask questions or inspiring each other to look up more stuff or research things beyond the hour and a half that we're together, it's really helped me to crave that knowledge where I'm critically thinking about the entire Bible. Yeah, I, I totally agree about that. There's such value in working through a book of the Bible. There's such value in uh, organizing your thoughts 
on a particular doctrine. You know, both are really important. And, you know, having categories for our thoughts and organizing them are important for any field. You know, so that's really cool to see you guys growing in, in, in that way as well. What would you say would be some other points that you've learned uh, while starting this online Bible study? So I think one of the biggest things that we've learned and experienced is just how how big of a need there is for community throughout the, the pandemic that we're all experiencing. There are people that are still in lockdowns, like in other countries, can't go outside of their houses. There are people that are uh, like isolated with, with their beliefs and don't have people around them where they feel like they can honestly talk about the Bible or talk about questions they have. So there's a I think one thing we've seen is just how big of a need there is for community. Uh, we've had just had a tremendous response from, from people that join. They're so thankful to have a, a place where they can get to know other people that are also asking questions about the Bible or a place where they can ask questions that they might not be able to ask anywhere else. And uh, a lot of these people attend other Bible studies on other nights of the week. Like there's so much opportunity to provide a place for community for people. One of the other things that that we've learned is that the the online format really works a lot better than you would think. I think from from the beginning, we were both a little bit hesitant to start something online because we know that being in person is is really the best. Like that's where you can you can meet people and being in person generally means that you live close to these people. You can live your life with them in community. But in Salt and Light, we've seen that we're able to get actually pretty close with people who, who attend. As Paula said, one of, the, one of the things we do every week is we take time to talk about how our week has been. We talk about prayer requests that we have, praise reports, like things that, that God has been doing for people. And through doing that week over week, we find ourselves being close to people that we haven't even met in person and sometimes people who, who don't even have their video on during the meeting, we still find ourselves being close with them. So the online format is, it's really, there's really no substitute for being in person, but we've really seen that, that the online format can still provide you with community and can, can help you connect with other people really effectively. Cool. Cool. One of the last things that I think has, has run rung true with us in particular is that you don't have to wait for an organization to start a Bible study and you don't need a particular set of qualifications to do this. I think a lot of people rely on, on church organizations to initiate that, or they rely on some sort of affiliation with an organization to study the Bible. But that's not really something that's necessary. Like people have people over to their house to talk about all sorts of things. I don't know why you can't have people over to your house or you can't call people up or have a zoom meeting and talk about the Bible. And that's, that's basically what we need, what we do. All right. Well, what would you say to somebody who's interested in starting one of these up? Yeah. If someone's looking to start an an online Bible study, they can come uh, check out our group and talk to us and, uh, ask us any questions that they have. Really, besides a good internet connection and a Zoom subscription, you really just need a, a desire to study the Bible with other people and uh, a humility 
and to be okay with not agreeing with everybody on everything. Some of the essentials that I would say are really helpful for starting an online Bible study is a true desire to meet genuine needs. Humbleness for sure is on top of that list. Humbleness to learn together, to be okay with not having all the answers. Um, there are plenty of Christians all over the world who want to study the Bible. And it, it does take boldness to start something and it takes faithfulness to keep it going, which is discipleship. You know, it, it's what it takes to be a disciple. I would just invite people to come check out our group and talk to us. There's such a need for community out there in so many different ways that people can meet that need. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be the same format that we have. Um, you know, if someone wants to start a book group and read a Christian book, I think there's a need for that. And then I'm sure they can find people on the internet that have that same interest as them. We use Zoom, which has been very easy for us, but there are other free alternatives to that. But really, I, I think one of the important qualities is having uh, the boldness to, to be someone who starts something like that and the faithfulness to stick through it and to meet every week or every other week and to reach out and find other people who have a need that you can meet. Another super helpful thing that I'd recommend for those who are interested in starting an online Bible study is to have another couple or another friend who is just as passionate on starting this to help support the group. For us, that's been John and Anna Brown. They've been indispensable in this whole journey and it's been so great to work together and to get to know them better. So for us, for coordinating that together has been a really big bonding experience yeah, as friends. Yeah, it's, it's a total joint effort with the four of us. So having the four of us as kind of a core really helps provide a consistent structure to it, we found. Okay. Well, uh, let's say somebody listening would like to join in this Tuesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. How would they do it? People can email us at salt.light.studynight at gmail.com. Or they can join our Facebook group, which is Salt and Light Study Night. After they email us, we'll respond with the Zoom link or with our phone number, you know, our contact information to somehow get in touch with each other. Okay, very good. Well, I appreciate your time today. And this has really, I think, been huge, developing online fellowships and enabling people to connect with each other is, is really important. And because of this pandemic, and even if the pandemic goes away, there are still so many people who are isolated, who just don't live near other believers. I can't tell you how often I get emails and Facebook requests from people who are just feeling alone. And I don't think the solution is for everyone to just join Sunday service webcast. I think that's fine. My church, we have a Sunday webcast. A lot of other churches do as well. But what you guys are talking about is fellowship in the true sense of the word, full sharing. And if somebody is a spectator, they're not fully sharing. They have to move from being a spectator to a participant, and that's where a lot of change and excitement can happen in someone's life when they're really engaging with other people. So I think this is really tremendous. I think it's to some degree, the wave of the future 
at least to get things started. And then once things are going in local areas, then you can have that in-person experience as well. But uh, I really commend you guys for your your willingness to learn and grow. It's a very rare quality, <laughs> but very important quality. So I really appreciate your example on this, and I hope others will be able to to join in. Do you guys have any final words for anybody? Do you have a salt and light uh, jingle? <laughs> That'd be so cool. I should work <laughs> on that little ukulele jingle. Yeah, it's like um, when you're getting lonely at night, <laughs> come to salt and light. <laughs> Gotta work on that. I would just like to say that you're welcome to come check us out. And to those who are listening who currently attend Salt and Light, we love you and we're so blessed by you. All right. Well, you have a great night. Thanks, yeah, Sean. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Well, that concludes this interview. What did you think? Are you curious about it? Are you going to check it out? You can find out more information by emailing salt.light.studynight or just saltlightstudynight without the dots, works just as well, at gmail.com. Or you can visit the Facebook group, which I have linked in the show notes for this episode. If you're curious about who the Jerry in question is that we spoke of during this episode, that would be Jerry Weirwell. And I have a link also to his episode on Paul and covenantal gnomism. If you have any kind of interest in hearing what it is that hooked John Ely in the first place, as well as his other episodes in the show notes for this episode, as for our last episode, 381, Bible-Fed, Spirit-Led with Kevin Gigu, uh, we got a ton of interaction and comments on there, way more than I have the time to read out here, but I'll just read out a couple. Uh, one was Carlos, who wrote in, if you recall, Carlos's episode was called Test the Spirits, and that was episode 380. He wrote in saying, around the 30-minute mark, you, Kevin, mentioned how in some charismatic churches, people fall, laugh, jump up and down, etc. You also cited 2 Chronicles 5.14 as proof for some of these manifestations. It sounds like you're describing what some call slain in the Spirit and laughing in the Spirit. Are you saying this is a good Christian belief slash practice? Kevin responded to that and said, hi, Carlos, I believe that good Christian belief slash practice, your phrase, is anything genuinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, not merely a checklist of allowable how-tos in Scripture. Some Scripture is prescriptive of what we should do and how we should do it. On the other hand, some Scripture is descriptive of merely what others in another time were guided to do and how they did it. Experiences that you refer to, also hand-raising, etc., may be one, godly, two, ungodly, or three, an expression of someone's worshipful submission to God from someone's tradition. I believe that the Holy Spirit may inspire anything God wishes, even when it's unfamiliar or uncomfortable. The Bible is full of places being shaken where they were assembled. We quench fiery darts, but we don't quench the Spirit. We should be very careful in predetermining a long list of experiences we'd consider counterfeits. We may not be comfortable with God inspiring a talking donkey, the marrying of a harlot, or allowing Naaman to bow down in the pagan house of Rimen. Our community doesn't use the pejorative term slain in the spirit, but I believe that at times God's people may feel brought to the floor under the weightiness of his presence. Then he cites a number of scripture and Craig Keener's notes in the IVP Bible background commentary 
And he continues from there. Carlos writes back, thank you for taking the time to answer. So then what exactly is the criteria for testing what is genuinely inspired by the Holy Spirit? And uh, Carlos also asked the identical question to me, and this is really the, the question driving his episode, which I titled, Test the Spirits. And this is something he's pulling from 1 John chapter 4. I thought it might be helpful to read it out here. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. In this context here, we're looking at not just, not all spirit manifestations or activity. What we're looking at is prophecy, which is a specific gift of the spirit or manifestation of the spirit. In the case of the people mentioned in 1 John who went out from the believers, but have been really teaching a totally different doctrine. And what John is advising here is that people should test the spirits to see if it really is from God. In other words, if this spirit is confessing that Jesus had not come in the flesh, had not come in a physical manner, that spirit is not from God. So this is, without a doubt, a doctrinal test given for the Spirit, and I think it does lend a lot of credence to the practice described in 1 Corinthians 14.29, where it says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said, as well as 1 Thessalonians 5.20, which says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So there's no question at all that when we're referring to the activity of prophecy, that it is on the congregation, and especially on the leadership of the congregation, to test what is said against the Scripture. However, this is not the same as what we find Kevin talking about in his last episode, where somebody laughs in the Spirit, or falls down in the Spirit, or speaks in tongues in the Spirit, or heals somebody else in the Spirit. How do you test those? Carlos wants a single test that qualifies for all Holy Spirit activity. Let me ask a question then. What if you came across somebody, you were walking around, let's say, in a deserted area, or in a park, or off on a mountain, and you encountered somebody who was prophesying totally naked and had been doing so all day and all night, would that person's behavior fail the test? Even if their prophecy didn't go against what Scripture says. Uh, I think for most of us, we would say, no, that kind of behavior is lewd, it's inappropriate, and this cannot possibly be the Spirit of God. But then when we read 1 Samuel 19.23, we see that, And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, and he went, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. 
And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? In this case, we have no question that this is the Spirit of God that intervened in Saul's life. However, his behavior we would certainly consider to be aberrant and controversial. Now, I think it is helpful to, to note that Saul isn't doing this in the middle of a temple worship service in the midst of the people. Uh, this is somewhat off the beaten path in a situation where there is a prophet there involved, Samuel, who is an experienced man of God. But at the same time, I think we can agree this is bizarre behavior. And I think any of us would be quick to jump on that and say, oh, that's not of God, that's, that's demonic. Well, I think you have to be careful. You really have to be careful. Yes, we're given a test when it comes to prophecy, that the content of the prophecy lines up with Scripture. No question about that. And we are called to judge those prophecies. However, if I hear somebody speaking in a foreign language, how am I supposed to know if, that person, if what that person is saying is against Scripture or for Scripture? Well, the, the interpretation, and then we can judge the interpretation. But what about these other kinds of activity of the Spirit? I would say it's better to err on the side of caution, err on the side of grace, because we do not want to call out God's genuine activity in people's lives as demonic, which is exactly what they did to Jesus when he said that, when he called it the unforgivable sin. I'm not looking to get anywhere near the unforgivable sin. What about you? There are certainly times where people are making it up, and there is such a thing as demonic manifestation, and we certainly shouldn't be gullible or naive about those sorts of things. But that's why God has given his people the Spirit. And one particular activity of that Spirit that we haven't had much time to get into in this series, and I'm kind of sorry about that, is discerning of spirits. And this is something that is hugely important for us, where God is able to help us discern what is legitimate and what is illegitimate. And that is something that happens between God and the person. It's not based on some sort of doctrinal criterion. Taking, for example, the case where Kevin brought up of the donkey that spoke. Does the donkey have correct doctrine? Right? But it still was a Holy Spirit manifestation. So I think there is, as I tried to sort of synthesize last time, a real importance to lightening up on our rigidity when it comes to the Holy Spirit and recognizing that God's Spirit is an untamable wildfire that you cannot shove into a box and be like, oh, that's just the way it works and nothing more and nothing less. It's just not that sort of a thing. Uh, but on the other side, Carlos's point about testing the spirits, that is something that's, that's valid and that we need to be doing, especially when it comes to interpretation of tongues, especially when it comes to prophecy. We really do need to test those spirits and line them up with the Scripture. And if they are confessing that Jesus is not the Messiah, if they are confessing that Jesus is a spirit being who didn't come in physical form, if they are testifying that uh, something that is directly against what, what the Scripture says, then yeah, we do need to act. We do need to get involved in that situation. That does warrant a confrontation in that kind of a situation. But when it comes to somebody falling on the ground because they, they got inspired and, and everything else, I find it hard to judge that person as being illegitimate. It's really between that person and God, isn't it? 
So that's where I guess I land on this whole thing. I know that that will be deeply unsatisfying to some of you. And based on the comments that I've seen here, there are a wide range of views on this subject in the Rest Studio community. And you know what? That's just fine. Kim writes in saying, this whole conversation fascinates me. I very much relate to that fear of being wrong. Some of us are going to be wrong and some correct. We all come from such different perspectives and backgrounds and experiences with the spirit we as humans don't like not being in total control. It's understandable to an extent, but we also most likely miss out by hiding behind fear and control. Is God held back and not able to do as much as he would He would because of this? I wonder. Anthony Buzzard writes in, Thanks so much for exploring these issues. We are all in search of authentic Christianity. I have multiple stories from the past 50 years of people who, having been fully instructed in tongue speaking and having taught their children to speak in tongues, eventually abandoned the whole experience, believing it to be a clever form of self-deception. I do have one major question. Why would God grant the gifts which are accrediting signs of the gospel when some claimants to the gifts have not even understood the non-negotiability of water baptism? God gives the Spirit to those who obey Him, Acts 5.32. But we are aware of some claimants to the gifts who refuse water baptism. What do you make of this? Well, that statement sure did uh, inspire quite a bit of discussion and follow-up from Rob Woods, Tracy Z, and some others on the importance or non-importance of baptism. Uh, As far as my understanding of baptism and its importance, I would refer you to interview 14, Ken LaProd's Baptism Journey. Uh, this is something that is very easily and clearly described in Scripture as a normal practice for the early Christians, and I don't see any place where baptism went away. Even after the Spirit was poured out in the day of Pentecost, we certainly we, we still see both together. And that has been the case throughout the 20 centuries of church history. You, you can look at the practice of baptism throughout that period and see that there is some variety in how it is administered, but by and large, it is standard among all Christian denominations throughout time here. Uh, but that's really, I think, a red herring. This is, this is something that just kind of gets us off the topic of the gifts of the Spirit. The greater point that Antony makes here is that he says some people have spoken in tongues but then abandoned the exercise, believing it to be a clever form of self-deception. Well, that was, in fact, one of the interviews that I did. That was with Victor Gluckin, where he came to understand, this was episode 379, Gifts of the Spirit for the Common Good. Victor Gluckin came to understand that he was deceiving himself, And he was just uttering syllables, but it wasn't the genuine gift of tongues. It was just him making it up. But I think it's important also to say that just because some people are making it up certainly doesn't mean that all people who speak in tongues are therefore bogus. That just simply doesn't follow that from the experience of some, all must be counterfeits. And I, I think that's really the pushback I'd like to offer here, is that uh, we really don't need to be judging everyone's experience and expression of the Holy Spirit as genuine or not genuine based on does it fit my criteria 
of my own personal experience or these five people that I know or 50 people in the case of Anthony Buzzer has been doing this for a long time, has a lot of experience. Still, I think we have to be careful to universalize our own anecdotal evidence as the only way that things can happen. That would be my response and caveat there. Darcy Durham writes in, thanks, Sean and Kevin. Indeed, all contributors to this really enlightening, challenging seven-part series. While Kevin's experiences are not my own, I found what he said and him personally to give out a ring of truth. I especially found his thoughts, which I summarize as, beware of putting God and his Holy Spirit in our own respective thought and life experience boxes, a salutary warning and reminder that the evil one so often uses to ensnare us in our own subtle and often hidden intellectual pride. And he continues on from there. You can read the rest of his comment at restitudio.org. Fiona Fitzgerald writes in, thanks so much for this series, Sean. Really enjoyed it, and it gave me much food for thought. And a number of others have written in as well. I, I really... Uh, I really can't read them all out here. But uh, if you're curious what people are saying about the Holy Spirit series, the seven-part Holy Spirit series, check out uh, episode 381, where uh, we have a quite a lively discussion on the topic occurring there. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Stay tuned for next week as we hear a story about coming to America with Timmy Paul Lupe. Very excited about this interview if you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.